Good morning, everybody. Praise the Lord, everybody. What an incredible week we're having. It's an honor to be with you. And uh, I thank you for being here this morning. I believe God's going to speak to us. And if you would just lift your hands right now and invite God to speak to you personally, that would set us on the right course. Would you put your voice in the air with those hands and lift it up and give God permission to touch us, to minister, to speak, whatever God wants to do. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, for your presence that's in this conference. We have convened together with you this week, and I pray that you would speak in this session this morning. God, I pray that you would uh, hide me and show forth yourself, and I pray that you'd impact these lives that are so important to your kingdom. Everybody said in Jesus' name. It's a high honor to be here with you. Um, I'm not part of your age group. I'm no longer even in your stage of life. But I do love this age group. The name of this ministry sums up everything that this ministry is about. Hyphen. It is a transitory phase. It's a lot of transitions and changes most young adults find themselves in. And in so many areas of life, everything seems to be in flux at this stage in the game. And it's all at the same time. So it's a little overwhelming at times. It can be exciting. But it can be a little intimidating and frightening, too. And uh, you haven't been where I've been in life yet, but I've been where you've been, and I, I do understand. Now, some of the statisticians and the pollsters, they say that your demographic, 18 to 30, they are most likely to want immediate gratification and instant recognition. And they say that the millennials are often impatient, and they're immature, and they don't play by the rules. And... I thought this one was kind of mean. They said they sometimes have the attention span of a five-year-old. That's kind of cool. And they say about you that because of reality TV and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Periscope and every other kind of self-promoting social media, they've even tagged you the selfie generation. And most tragically, they say that you are the generation more likely than any other to walk away from your faith during the years 18 to 30. Thank God for hyphen that steps into that kind of a gap and makes a difference. But when they get talking about all those statistics, I just want to say, you've never met any apostolic millennials, have you? Because as a pastor, I want to go on the record today and say that the hyphens in our church, and there are several of them here today, they are some of the most committed the most involved, the most prayerful, the most worshipful, the most godly, the most responsible, and the most evangelistic. To sum it all up, they're some of the most apostolic people that I have the privilege to pastor. So secular polls just do not take into account the difference that the Holy Ghost can make in a life. It changes everything. It changes all the rules and all the stats. It changes everything. So yes, they, they keep putting this in the papers and on the media. Nominal Christianity is declining, especially among your age groups. But what they call convictional Christianity is growing dramatically, especially among your age group. Millennials are now one quarter of North America. You are the largest generation in history. In fact, right now, one half of the world's population is under 30 years of age. So no wonder NAYC is the largest apostolic meeting in our history. What a chance we have to impact our world this week. 
and, and you guys are cutting edge and you're a little intimidating to old guys like me because 53% of millennials say they would rather lose their sense of smell than their mobile device. More people in our world right now own a mobile device than own a toothbrush. And hopefully you're not sitting beside one of them right now. Every day that we live, 20%, one in five terms typed into Google has never been searched before. Knowledge is expanding dramatically. So yes, you will be the generation that develops brand new ways for the church to reach our world. You will be the ones who create incredible new ministries to strengthen and to grow the church. And almost without doubt, you will be the generation that sees the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the clouds to receive this church to himself. That's you. That's hyphen. And I hope, I hope that all the effort and money and time and creativity and people that have been involved in NAYC 2015. I hope that shows you just how much the United Pentecostal Church International believes in you and your generation. The pollsters tell me that your generation's greatest desire is for something real. Yeah. They don't have to be an apostolic Christian. Your generation just wants something real. And their greatest fear across your generation is living a life that doesn't make a difference. So today I want to take a few minutes and I want to share something with you that for me made a massive difference in my life. And everybody I know that gets this, it makes a massive difference in their life. The key is you've just got to learn it early enough. Bro, I want to go to slide number nine if you would. I have no doubt that God has given many of you promises about your future. I have no doubt. In this room there are people that you have a promise from God about your future. And um, God's revealed something to you that you're going to do for him or his kingdom. And it seems so big and so grandiose. And you're almost embarrassed to talk about it because you don't want people to think that you're on an ego trip. But I want to speak to you this morning and tell you that always you need to remember that God never explains his timing or his path to that vision he's given you. Um... What we need to discern, there's a path that we think is yes or no. If God lays this vision or this dream or this calling on my heart, then he's immediately going to take me there. And so I think if he doesn't do it immediately, that God has said no. What we need to discern is that God doesn't always say to the hyphen generation yes or no. Yes, you're called, but if I don't do it right away, then no, you weren't really called. What he's really trying to get us to discern is something that Aaron Soto said on Twitter a while ago. God's wanting us to discern these two pathways between yes and now. Because just because God says yes doesn't mean he said right now. I know that more people have messed up over this one than probably just about anything else. Because this will make you want to be a leader when you should be wanting to be a follower. This will make you try to puff up and exert your authority when you should be submitting to authority. 
This will make you insist on your timing when we need to trust God's timing. And this will make you try to force a door open in your life instead of waiting for God to open it. And so I want to give this to you this morning. It's so important. Uh, in, in Bible school, uh, we studied something called the Mountain Peaks of Prophecy. It was, it was incredible. And uh, if you've been in Bible school, you've probably seen one of these charts. This is a guy named Clarence Larkin. He was a draftsman. And basically his whole point, we won't go through the chart. You can relax. Uh, the, the, the chart was that the prophets in the Old Testament, they stand back and they look ahead. And they see some things about prophecy. But they don't see everything about prophecy. They see the first coming of Jesus. Uh, they, they see, uh, some of them see this baby born in Bethlehem. Uh, some of them see uh, him coming in his glory. Some of them see his suffering. But the thing that none of the prophets really got a handle on was that there's a 2,000 year gap between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, and that's called the church age. And so when Jesus came and he didn't conquer the Romans and stamp out everything and right every wrong immediately, they crucified him. And they missed the purpose of God because they missed the timing of God. I am not suggesting for a second that God's going to tie up your dream for 2,000 years because I know you're young and strong, but most of you don't have that long. So, so that's not what I'm suggesting. But I am suggesting that that whole thing shows us a little bit about God's purpose. Here's what God said uh, to, to Abraham. Uh, Romans chapter 4 verse 20. The Bible says that Abraham staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strong in faith, he gave glory to God, and he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform it. So Abraham has this unshakable confidence in God. He's got a promise. God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham believes God so much that he just has faith that God's going to perform that. He's persuaded of it. He can go to the bank on it. But Abraham doesn't realize that there's a little bit of a time frame in there. Much later on, God says to Abraham, and it's recorded in Hebrews 6, I swear I'm going to bless you. Why does God say to Abraham, I swear I'm going to bless you? Well, here's why God would make a covenant and then say, I swear that I'm telling the truth. Because sometimes when you're serving God and walking with God and hanging on by your fingernails to the promise that God's put in your life, sometimes God looks like a liar. And sometimes it looks like serving God doesn't work. And sometimes things get worse before they get better. And sometimes it feels like you're going backwards instead of forward. And sometimes it feels like God's trying to kill you instead of bless you. But Abraham said, I don't care what it looks like or feels like. I am persuaded that the promise God gave me, the vision God showed me, the calling God put on me, he is able to perform it. So I'm going to hang in there until God comes through for me. I didn't come here to preach to you a little pablum message. And I thank God that Sister Kristen didn't preach to you a little pablum message yesterday. We don't have time to entertain each other. It's great to have fun. We're having a blast this week. But church is not about just entertaining each other until we grow up. Church is about getting your hand in the harvest and getting your feet in holiness and getting your head in the book and getting your heart in worship. That's what this is about. Now, 
that's, that's awesome because we, we clapped for that one. But there's this pattern in the Word of God that we're meant to see. Now, now if you can imagine this, this difference, be, uh, just imagine a straight line. There's this pattern that you're meant to notice. Between the time God gives us a promise and the time God performs what he said he would do, there's this space. Now, we think it looks like that. That God gave me this vision. God called me. God anointed me. I got a special touch from God last night. God laid things on my heart. And so I'm going to go home. And I would say by about next Thursday morning at 1030, I should have it all together. But that's not exactly what this looks like. It looks a little more like this. In between the time that God gives you a promise and you get to when God performs it, there's a time of preparation. And sometimes it feels like you are upside down. And sometimes it feels like nothing is working. But I'm just here to tell you, as somebody that's a little further in life's journey than you, the best thing you can do in your life is be faithful to God, no matter, even if you feel like He's not right now being faithful to you. If you'll be faithful to Him, He will come through. He is a faithful covenant-keeping God. Everybody in Scripture went through this. Job went through it. Behold, I go forward. He's not there. Backward. I can't perceive him. On the left hand, I think he's working over there, but I can't behold him. And he hides himself on my right hand, and I can't see him over there. And Job said, so when I'm feeling all of this, I've only got one thing left. I don't know where I'm going right now. I don't know what's going on right now. I don't know why it feels this way right now. So here's the only thing I've got. But God knows the way that I take. And when God has tried me, when God has put me through whatever he's putting me through, I can't control what I'm going through, but I can control this. I shall come forth as gold. I don't know when I'm getting out of this, but when I get out of it, I'm going to be gold. I don't know how I'm coming out, but however I come out, I'm going to be gold when I get to the end of it. Why in the world has God put us to the test? Doesn't God know that you're already ready to minister? Of course he does. But he wants you to know that you're ready to minister. See, the very act of testing you is part of your preparation. It can drive you into a deeper relationship with God like nothing else can. God examines the true inner attitudes and the motives of those he calls. He wants to show us whether we're pure in our motives or not. God's not just trying to hurt you or expose all your weaknesses. He's really trying to get you to turn to him for help and for healing. And through our trials and our tough times, God removes, removes impurities in our lives. And by walking through that, it, it equips us so we're not so arrogant. And when we finally get to where God's called us to be, we understand others a little bit better, and we're a little more humble about it. Testing shows God, it shows others, and most of all, it shows you just how you will react when God says yes, but not right now. I know more young people that have messed up on that one than almost everything else. You could almost say it like this, sexual sin has killed its thousands, but this has killed its tens of thousands. 
that they got so frustrated with God because they wanted to do something for God. They felt a call from God. But they got in this process of delay and it messed up their mind. And so in an attempt to kind of do something about it, they did the wrong thing. I don't want you to do that. Because the most important thing in your walk with God, the most important thing for you to know is what is inside you. God will work you over so you will really know what is inside you. Because what you portray to all the rest of us and what I portray to you, that's not the important thing about me. The only thing that's really important about me is what God knows about me in the secret parts of my heart. And only God's delays in our lives reveal that. Many Christians have a desire to be used by God, and they don't understand the process. There are many different tests. I read a book one time. It's by a guy named Frank Damasio. It's called The Making of a Leader. And, and he gives these tests that all God's people go through if God's going to use them. It just would irritate you just to read it. Here's just a handful. I, I don't have time. There's the time test. The time test is when, by all outward appearances, God isn't fulfilling the word he gave you. And it tries your patience. And then you want to fulfill your promise in your own way and not wait for God. David went through the time test. He had an anointing poured on him to be king of Israel, and he spent the next 15 years running as a fugitive from the current king of Israel. He had to wait. It was the time test. Then there's the word test. Joseph went through this. God gave him a word. God gave Joseph. He was a young guy. He was a hyphen. And God gave Joseph the greatest dream of the Old Testament up to that point, that everybody in his family, representing all the tribes of Israel, would bow before him. That was Joseph's grand dream. And Joseph's life went in reverse faster than anything you could imagine. His brothers sold him into slavery. He went into a prison. He got released from that temporary prison with the Potiphar's house. He got falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, even though he stood up with integrity, got thrown back into prison. It was just going in reverse. But what Joseph couldn't have known is that God's word did come true. It just took a while. And like David, Joseph spent about 15 years going in reverse in his life and finally ended up on the throne of Egypt. He couldn't have known that God was not playing checkers with him. God was playing chess. It was a strategic moving of every detail of his life so that when he finally got to that place and it looked like everything was lost, do you realize everything turned around in Joseph's life in about five minutes? One minute he was a prisoner. One minute he had a lifetime sentence in jail and the next moment they were cleaning him up for an audience with the king, the pharaoh of Egypt. It all turned around in a heartbeat. But only because while Joseph was in prison, Joseph was faithful. Damasio says there's the character test. Like Samuel faced as a young boy when everybody in the religious system of Israel was corrupt and the sons of the prophet, they, they, they were uh, in front of the, the temple doing horrid things. And little Samuel, uh, he's living for God in a very dark age. That's the character test. Some of you go to school, college, university. Some of you are in a neighborhood or a family where it's just black with sin and it's just black with cursing and it's just black with sensuality and sexuality. Thank 
thank you for standing up as a light in a dark world. What you don't understand is God is driving your character deep so that by the time you get to that place that he's already talked to you about, when you get there, the devil's not going to be able to do anything to stop it because you're going to have some iron character and some spiritual backbone in your life. Damasio talks about the self-will test, and that's when God asks you to do something that goes against everything that you feel and everything you want. Abraham faced that when God asked him to offer his only son. He talks about the discouragement test. Elijah went through that. Oh my goodness, Elijah was quite a guy. He calls down fire from heaven, wipes out all the prophets of Baal, and then one ugly carnal queen. She makes one threat against him, and he's sitting sulking somewhere. And God was testing him. Can you survive discouraging times? Because if you can, I can use you. Then there's the wilderness test. I won't read the rest, but Moses faced the wilderness test. You find yourself in a dry place. Everybody else is having a great time at church. And don't you discount the wilderness. And please listen to me. Don't you backslide when you go through the wilderness. Don't check out of church when you go through the wilderness. You've got to make up in your mind that if I go to a hundred services in a row and I don't feel one twinge of any emotion, my relationship with God is not based on what I feel. It's based on the Word of God. And I've got a promise that says He's faithful. And I just choose to believe this instead of this. I'm just going to hang on to what God showed me. In the wilderness, hyphens, you'll figure it out real quick. You'll figure out whether it's just all your activities that are sustaining you or whether you have a real prayer life and a real relationship with God and a real relationship in the Word. So when you get in the wilderness, please don't check out. Dig in. Because if you'll dig in, it'll drive your roots so deep that you can live in a spiritual desert for a hundred years and you'll still be bearing fruit for the kingdom. serve God at Youth Congress, but you can't serve God as Youth Congress. We don't serve God as a group of 20,000 people. We serve God individually. We serve God alone, and that's what you've got to keep in mind. It is not enough to be called by God, and I know God's put callings on every life in this room. It's not enough to be called. The Bible says in Matthew 20, the last shall be first, the first last. In other words, the kingdom of God's kind of backwards. For many be called, but few are chosen. How do you get chosen? When God calls so many people, how do you get chosen? You hunker down and you dig in and you discipline yourself. The root word of disciple and the root word of discipline are still the same word. You cannot be effective for God if you're just coasting through life. You say, did you come here to scold us? No, I admire this generation more than I could put into words in five hours. I'm so grateful for your worship. You are the most evangelistic generation in history. Over 60% of the hyphen age group shared their faith in the last year. That dwarfs every other age group of the church combined. Thank you for being on fire for God. 
But it's not enough to just have these momentary bursts of spiritual energy somewhere. we got to hunker down for the long haul because it's getting worse out there. Wickedness is increasing. They're calling good evil and evil good. But it's time for a holy generation to stand up with fire in their soul and with the word of God in their mind. God says, okay, I called a bunch of them at Youth Congress, but that one I'm going to choose to use. I called a bunch of them, but many of them just frittered away their calling, and they went back to all the stuff they were doing before. But that one, they dug in. So I called them, but now I choose them. I choose to use them because they took their calling, and they did something with it. They took their calling, and they deepened it. But even that's not enough, because if you get to the last book in the Bible, it says, they that are with Jesus when he comes back, they are called and chosen and faithful. They stuck it out long after. God put them in a place where they could be useful, and then all hell broke loose. God put them in a place where they could be a witness, and all opposition of the enemy broke loose. But they just hung in there, and they were faithful. And when he comes back, there's going to be a great host, and 20,000 will look like a drop in the bucket, and they're the ones that are called and chosen and faithful. That's a better goal and a bigger goal than your education. Get your education, but get yourself called and chosen and faithful. Get a career. Get a good one. Make money and support the work of God. But get yourself called and get yourself chosen and get yourself faithful. Before God ever promotes you to the next level that you are praying for and believing for, you'll almost always find yourself, you got to get this, you walk in that higher level of anointing. God anoints you for that, but you don't have a position yet, you don't have a title yet, you don't have any resources yet. Nobody recognizes, and you're, you're burning up inside with this passion for God, and God's anointed you, and there's many of you in this room this morning. God's already anointed some of you with a missionary anointing. God's already anointed some of you with a pastoral anointing or an evangelist anointing. God's anointed some of you with prophetic gifts and you're just trying to feel your way along in that. And you know many people in your generation think that's kind of weird and spacey, but you know that you know that God's used you and he's laid that on you. But here's the problem. God will put an anointing on you and yet you don't have the position yet to do anything with it. Can I tell you that you're in good company because God does that to everybody that he chooses. You receive the anointing and then God sends you that mess of tests, that mess of preparation to get you ready. And uh, all of that is so that when God finally uses you, I don't know what you believe about your generation. I believe that in this room there are people that are going to preach to larger audiences than anybody in the history of the United Pentecostal Church has ever preached to. And yeah, I know about some of our biggest meetings overseas. I really believe that about your generation. I really believe that in this generation there are some prayer warriors that are going to shake hell 
and split cities wide open. I really believe that in this room, I'm not talking just, I really believe that in this room there are some people called to be evangelists and the numbers that they will see in their ministry receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Lives change are going to dwarf any expectation even they even have for their life. And that's why God puts you to the time of test because he doesn't want you to blow up with your ego when you get there. He doesn't want you to blow up with pride when he finally starts to use you. So he puts you to the test. Because hyphens, your transition into that next level of service for God and anointing of the Spirit, it has to happen internally before it happens externally. I do not take cheap shots at your generation because I love and admire your generation. But we have to be careful in this age of social media that your online persona, your online identity doesn't become a performance in and of itself. You've got to be careful that you're not just tweeting about prayer, but you don't pray. transition will happen internally before it happens externally. So I want you to remember that just because God hasn't put you in that position yet, doesn't mean he said no. It is not the difference between yes and no. It's the difference between yes and now. Sometimes God gives you this yes in your spirit and you're just consumed. See, it's, it's one thing when God gives you a not now and you try to figure that out. That's tough. But it's another thing when that not now comes from people. That really messes a lot of people up. And these are not sinful people I'm talking about. No, these are good people, godly people, spiritual people. In fact, they're people that sometimes God has placed over you in authority. And can we just be honest? It seems like they're the ones that are blocking your way to the next level of your calling. Are we real yet? And it feels that way. The psalmist said in 55, he said, it wasn't an enemy that messed me up. I could have taken that. I expected opposition from the world. But it was you. You can hear the betrayal in his voice. He said, it was you. We were part of the same church. We went to the house of God together. You were my leader, you were my parents, you were my pastor. You, you messed me up because you said no and I didn't understand. This last guy, his name was Mark. And if anybody was a witness to apostolic history, it was him. He was about 10 years younger than Jesus and the rest of the disciples. They were at the end of the hyphen age bracket when Jesus began his earthly ministry and Mark was at the beginning of the hyphen age bracket. Has anybody noticed this yet? That many, if not most, of the key players in the New Testament church were hyphens? Has anybody noticed that yet? So before you think that you can't do anything for God, 
Jesus and all the disciples, the apostles, all the deacons in the first century church, they were almost all in the hyphen age group. This church got started with a bunch of hyphens. What do you say we wind it up before the rapture by having the greatest revival that this world has ever seen and let it burn the brightest in this age group right here? I love my elders, but I am not wasting what they passed to me. They put it on me so I could use it, not so I could remember it. John Mark's mother Mary, she was obviously a woman of means because her house had a room big enough to accommodate meetings of the early church. Many scholars believe that the Last Supper and the day of Pentecost and the prayer meeting for Peter's release from prison all happened in this big room uh, in Mark's house, in his mother's house. And Mark saw it all unfold. And it forever marked Mark. He felt a call to do something for the kingdom of God. Now Mark had all the impatience and impetuousness of youth. It's amazing to me that when he writes his gospel, some 30 years later, he includes one embarrassing predicament that he got himself into on the night Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, how's this for full disclosure? Mark 14, they all forsook Jesus and fled, and there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body, and the young man laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And he puts it in his own gospel. Give me a break. Every Bible scholar agrees. That's Mark. He's the only one that records it. Everybody else is willing to forget that moment. <laughs> but don't miss the implication of the passage. Mark got himself in trouble with the Roman guards simply because he was following Jesus closely. Don't overlook the clear statement in verse 50. All the other disciples had already forsaken Jesus and run in fear of their lives. So there was something good and something bold and something courageous in this young man. He followed when others fled and he stayed when others left. And yes, he was left naked and vulnerable, but at least he followed Jesus further than everybody else around him. Now, Mark remains in the background for the next few years of church history. He's always present, but he's never prominent. He's always in the background serving. He's never in the, back, in the foreground leading. He gets just a passing mention in Acts 12 only because his family owns the house where they're praying for Peter to get out of jail in Acts 12. But all that time, Mark is learning and growing and praying and serving and probably feeling a whole lot frustrated that his role in the church seems to be so minor and so insignificant. Other young men in his peer group have been chosen as deacons in Acts 6. And some of them have been used mightily by God like Stephen and Philip, but not Mark. At least not yet. And then finally, suddenly, Mark gets his big break in ministry, a chance to do something great for God. Paul and Barnabas set out from Jerusalem to the great missionary church in Antioch, and they take John Mark with them. It says that in Acts 12, verse 25. And, and then when the prophetic ministries in that church in Acts 13, 2, they direct these two great leaders, Paul and Barnabas. They lay their hands on them and they send them out on their first great missionary journey. Acts 13, 5 tells us that they also took John Mark with them. 
they had John, John Mark, as their minister. Uh, his, he's their assistant. His job description is additional duties as required. He is a glorified gopher. Go for this, go for that. He, that's what he does. But at least Mark is finally doing something that he's always dreamed about. He is executive assistant, if you will, to two very prominent apostolic ministers. Now, just between you and I and him, if he was here today, he'd tell you that he liked gentle Barnabas a whole lot better than that gruff, mean Apostle Paul. But Mark gets to see both of them preach and teach. And he gets right in the middle of more than one revival and more than one riot. The riots of the sinners in the cities can't compare to the riot that breaks out in the church when the Judaizers stir up trouble for Paul. And so Mark gets to see carnality up close. He gets to see weird carnal people opposing his leaders and his pastor and the apostles. And, but at least he gets a trip out of it. They go back to Jerusalem, to the North Jerusalem Truth Congress. Hashtag NJTC AD40. And the sessions at that Congress are not really incredible. In fact, they're very long and very loud and very, very tense. But finally, the church comes to an agreement on what they're going to do with the Gentiles who are coming to God. And Paul and Barnabas are right in the middle of it. And once again, Mark has a front row seat as history unfolds. And then the three of them return to Antioch and Paul and Barnabas, return to their ministries, and Mark just keeps serving like some of you are serving in your church. And then, we don't know why. Everything seems good for a while, and then Mark gets caught in the middle of a problem that forever impacts and affects him. It forever marks him. We don't know what he did or what he didn't do that made Paul upset with him. His leader got upset with him. His leader hurt his feelings. His leader said no, and it hurt Mark. Maybe he casually mentioned that he was lonely for home, and Paul got mad at that. Maybe he had too many youth ministry ideas. That's happened before. Maybe his dog ate one of Paul's epistles. I don't know what he did. I have no idea. But we do know that Paul got so upset that he fired Mark from the missionary team. And when gentle Barnabas tried to intervene, Paul fired him too. Mark was the cause of the first church split in history, and we don't even know what he did, and probably he didn't even know what he did. So in Acts 15, we read this. Barnabas determined that when they set out on their next journey, he determined to take with him John, whose surname was Mark, and Paul said, we're not taking him. It's not good to take him. He departed from us in Pamphylia, and he went not with us to the work. He, he didn't do what I told him to do. He didn't do what I wanted him to do. And the contention was so sharp between Paul and Barnabas that they departed asunder one from the other. And Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And Paul took Silas and departed. And he went off and did his thing. So Mark gets demoted in the middle of trying to work for God. He gets demoted to the second string. And he gets replaced by this guy named Silas from out of nowhere. And we never hear anything else or any more about the ministry of Barnabas and Mark, but Paul and Silas become household names in the early church. Their missionary adventures are epic. Can you imagine how Mark felt? Because when Paul said no, it felt like God was saying no. But listen to me, young people. God wasn't saying no. God was just saying not yet. 
So I came this morning to ask you if you've faced yet the test that nobody ever talks about. The test where it seems like even your spiritual leadership is trying to limit you. We never hear from Mark again for several years, not a word. And the most amazing thing is not that he stays silent, it's that he stays faithful. He retreats to the background. We never hear one word of complaint. He stays in that holding pattern for nearly 20 years. So John Mark's long delay in ministry is simply because of somebody else's attitude toward it, in this case, Paul. God doesn't do anything about it. God leaves him in a holding pattern for a good long while. And to add insult to injury, God just keeps using Paul and Silas in miraculous ways as though nothing had ever happened. And Mark's left to deal with delay and hurt and misunderstanding and embarrassment and crushed dreams and shattered hopes. Can you imagine how that young man felt? Maybe you can because maybe you felt like that. It's been referenced in just about every message this week. And I'm about to say it again. Because it is the secret to successful ministry in your future. It is the shield that protects you against false doctrine and worldliness. It is the foundation of the blessing of God in your life. And yes, it is the test that nobody ever talks to you about. It is a word that many in your generation love to hate. But this one word is the master key to the Christian life. It is the word submission. You can only submit when you put your life and your dreams and your goals and your ministry and your hopes under someone else's leadership. And you can only submit to them when you disagree with them and still do what they say for you to do. So you can imagine how long something like that would last with most people in your generation. They submit until their parents or their pastor or their youth pastor tell them no and then they become a free agent. That is not submission. In fact, that is just rebellion because partial disobedience is still full disobedience. I am not coming down on you this morning. I want to lift you up. I want to help you. Submission doesn't seem to be fair, especially when you feel like your spiritual leadership actually may have a wrong attitude toward you and all your plans and all your dreams. And that's exactly how Mark felt in the Bible. Maybe he chickened out on the missionary journey. Maybe he made a mistake. Maybe he did something that caused Paul a lot of extra work. But to be set on the shelf for an extra 20 years, really, because of one leader? Are you kidding me? Don't you think that Mark felt like saying, I think I'll find me a new pastor. But here's what you've got to remember. Mark refused to do that. You know why this is the test that nobody talks about? Because it's the test that no one can talk about. What's Mark supposed to do? Call a meeting with the elders in Jerusalem and say, I think the great apostle Paul has a bad spirit? Who's going to believe a young guy when it's the leader who's holding him back? And for nearly 20 years, Mark stays faithful. He doesn't get an attitude. He serves in the background. All because his spiritual leader said no. And then one day, out of the blue... Another young man like Mark named Timothy contacts him and says, the aging apostle Paul wants to see you. He's in prison, but he wants you to come because he wants to apologize to you. Second Timothy, only Luke is with me, Timothy. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And we don't know anything about that meeting or what Paul said to Mark or what Mark said to Paul. We, we don't even know really if it actually got to happen because Paul was about to die. But here's what we do know. 
that when Mark's leader released him for ministry, Mark was used by God to write one of the four Gospels that we still read today and it still blesses the church. His Gospel is the shortest because he's a hyperactive hyphen, but it's powerful. And God had thousands of people following him in the first century, but he only used four to write down the greatest story ever told. And because Mark stayed faithful and Mark stayed submitted and Mark didn't get an attitude and Mark didn't walk away from spiritual leadership, God chose him to be 25% of the gospel offers. So let me finish with one final scripture. You say, but Pastor Raven, Jesus is coming soon. I got to get out of it. Yes, Jesus is coming soon. But just because he's coming soon does not mean he's going to short-circuit his process of preparation for you. It doesn't mean that. Some generation is going to be alive when God interrupts their career plans and their education plans and their marriage plans and whatever. And God's going to interrupt that with the rapture. So you don't go into hibernation mode. You just keep serving God faithfully. You just stay involved. You just do everything your hand can find to do. Because at the end of the day, young people, at the end of the day, hyphens, God is way more interested in what he's going to do in you than what he ever will do through you. One last scripture. In Exodus, when a servant had served his master, servant could plainly say, when he was in the year of Jubilee, could be set free. He could say, I love my master. I love my wife and my children. I will not go out free. And then his master would bring him to the judges and bring him to the doorpost of the house. And his master would permanently mark him. He would drive a sharp awl through his ear, symbolizing that he was attaching him to the house forever. We're not in the Old Testament. We don't have masters and we are not slaves. But we have pastors. Here's what would change the United Pentecostal Church and your cities and your towns is if all of you young people with incredible anointing, some of you are way, can I just be honest? Some of you are way cooler than your pastor. Some of you are way smarter than your pastor in an educational sense. Some of you have had more exposure to missions than maybe your pastors have. Some of you have had more opportunities than your pastor had. But if we could have a, an army of young people leave this conference, after all the anointing that's been poured out on you and all the word that's been poured into you, and if you could go home and say, I love my pastor. I will not go out free. I won't be a free agent. If we could have an army of young people that will go home with everything that you're going to be tanked up on by the end of tonight, and you could go, don't go home and try to be a celebrity with your pastor. He doesn't need somebody to fan him or bring him. Like, he just needs somebody that would get a hold of his vision. Even if maybe your vision like Joseph is so great, but if you could get a hold of his vision and lock into his vision, God would honor you in such a way that you cannot even believe it. But more than that, it would change your church if you don't have to be the center of attention to get involved in ministry. I want you to stand right now and before you leave, and I know we need to go to session, but I want you to reach over and I want you to clamp your hand on the shoulder of somebody on either side. Go across the aisles if you can. I, I want to just make long chains of hyphens right now. And somebody in here, 
You feel like, well, I'm not there yet, but somebody, every word I said this morning, that is you right now. You are frustrated. You're feeling alone. You're feeling odd, and you're feeling left out. And you're feeling like God's blocked you, or your pastor's blocked you, or somebody's blocked you, or your parents have blocked you. Now, I want you to lift up your voice in the couple of minutes we have left. I want you to lift it high, loud, and proud and say, God, I'm going to go home. And I'm going to lock into my local church like I never have before. I don't need to be on staff. I don't need to have an office. I don't need to have a title. I don't need to have a salary. I don't need to have a church key. I don't need to have anything. I just need to go home and put out of my heart what you've put into my heart this week. I wish you'd lift that prayer up. I wish you'd lift up your voice like a trumpet. Because if you will do that, God is going to use this generation to impact this denomination. God's going to use this generation to impact every city and town and village that you've come from. Don't stop praying just yet. Lift that up. Lift that up. We'll get you to session, but don't miss what God's speaking to you in the next couple of minutes. Go home and be faithful. Go home and let your calling flesh out on God's timetable, not yours. Go home and put your hand to the plow. You're praying with your friend. I want you to pray for your friend as we get ready to dismiss. Pray for them. Pray that God would do something incredible in their life. Don't just pray for you. Pray for them. God would do something incredible in their life. Don't just pray for you. Pray for them.